Chapter 41, Part 1 of The Countess of Rudolstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudolstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 41, Part 1. At this moment, the doors of the temple opened, giving forth a metallic sound, and the invisibles entered in pairs. The magic voice of the harmonica, then recently invented. Footnote. It is well known that the harmonica produced such a sensation in Germany. At its appearance, the poetical imaginations wished to perceive in it the sound of supernatural voices invoked by the consecrators of certain mysteries. This instrument, considered magical before it became common, was for some time exalted by the adepts of German theosophy to the same divine honors as was the lyre among the ancients, and as are many other instruments of music among the primitive inhabitants of Himalaya. They made of it one of the hieroglyphic figures of their mysterious iconography. They represented it under the form of a fantastic chimera. The neophytes of the secret societies, who heard it for the first time after the terrors and the emotions of their severe trials, were so strongly impressed that many fell into ecstasy. They thought they heard the song of invisible powers, for the performer and the instrument were concealed from them with the greatest care. There are some extremely curious details respecting the extraordinary part played by the harmonica in the ceremonies of reception among the Illuminés, the penetrating vibration of which was a wonder unknown to Consuelo's ears, was heard in the air and seemed to descend from the cupola open to the rays of the moon and the vivifying breezes of the night. A shower of flowers slowly fell upon the happy couple, placed in the center of that solemn march. Wanda, standing by the side of a golden tripod, whence her right hand caused to burst forth dazzling flames and clouds of perfumes, held in her left the two ends of a chain of flowers and symbolic leaves which she had thrown around the lovers. The invisible chiefs, their faces covered with long red drapery and their heads bound with the same leaves of the oak and the acacia, consecrated by their rites, were erect with their arms extended to welcome the brothers, who inclined themselves as they passed before them. Those chiefs had the majesty of the ancient druids, but their hands, pure from blood, were opened only to bless, and a religious respect replaced in the adepts the fanatical terror of the religions of the past. As the initiated presented themselves before the venerable tribunal, they took off their masks to salute with uncovered faces those august unknown chiefs who had never manifested themselves to them but by acts of clement justice, of paternal love, and of exalted wisdom. Faithful, without regret and without mistrust, to the religion they had sworn, they did not seek to read with curious glances beneath those impenetrable veils. Doubtless their adepts, without being conscious of it, knew these magi of a new religion, 
who, mingling with them in the society and in the very bosom of their assemblies, were the best friends, the most intimate confidants of the greater number among them, of each of them, perhaps, in particular. But in the exercise of their common worship, the person of the priest was always veiled, as was the oracle of ancient times. Happy childhood of artless beliefs, almost fabulous aurora of sacred conspiracies, which the night of mystery envelops in all times with poetical uncertainties. Although hardly a century divides us from the existence of those invisibles, it is problematical to the historian. But thirty years later, Illuminism reassumed these forms unknown to the vulgar and drawing both from the inventive genius of its chiefs and from the traditions of the secret societies of mystical Germany, terrified the world by the most formidable, the most scientific, political, and religious conspiracies. For a moment it shook all the dynasties upon their thrones and sank in its turn, bequeathing to the French Revolution, as it were, an electric current of sublime enthusiasm, of ardent faith and terrible fanaticism. Half a century before those days marked by fate, and while the gallant monarchy of Louis XV, the philosophic despotism of Frederick II, the skeptical and mocking royalty of Voltaire, the ambitious diplomacy of Maria Theresa, and the heretical tolerance of Ganganelli, seem to announce as the destiny of the world only decrepitude, antagonism, chaos, and dissolution, the French Revolution was fermenting in the dark and germinating beneath the soil. It brooded in minds ardent even to fanaticism under the form of a dream of universal revolution, and while debauch, hypocrisy, or incredulity reigned openly over the world, a sublime faith, a magnificent revelation of the future, plans of organization as profound and perhaps more scientific than a furorism and Saint Simeonism of this day, realized already in some groups of exceptional men the ideal conception of a future society, diametrically opposed to that which covers and still conceals their action in history. Such a contrast is one of the most striking features of that 18th century, too full of ideas and of intellectual labor of all kinds, for its synthesis to have yet been made with clearness and profit by the philosophical historians of our day. The reason is that there exists a mass of contradictory documents and of misunderstood facts, incomprehensible at first sight, fountains muddied by the tumult of the age, which it would be necessary to purify patiently in order to reach the solid bottom. Many energetic laborers have remained obscure, carrying with them to their graves the secret of their mission. So many dazzling glories then absorbed the attention of their contemporaries. So many brilliant results at this day seize upon the retroactive examination of critics. But, little by little, light will issue from this chaos, and if our age succeed in recapitulating itself, it will also recapitulate the life of its father, the 18th century, that immense logogryph, that brilliant nebula, in which so much meanness stands opposed to so much grandeur, 
so much science to so much ignorance, so much barbarism to so much civilization, so much light to so much error, so much seriousness to so much intoxication, so much incredulity to so much faith, so much pedantry to so much frivolous mockery, so much superstition to so much proud reason. That period of a hundred years, which saw the reigns of Madame de Maintenon and of Madame de Pompadour, Peter the Great, Catherine II, Maria Theresa and the Dubarry, Voltaire and Swedenborg, Kant and Mesmer, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the Cardinal Dubois, Schreffer and Diderot, Fenelon and Law, Zinzendorf and Leibniz, Frederick II and Robespierre, Louis XIV and Philippe Egalité, Marie Antoinette and Charlotte Corday, Weishoff, Babouf, and Napoleon. A frightful laboratory in which so many heterogeneous forms were thrown into the crucible that they vomited in their monstrous ebullition, a torrent of smoke in which we still walk enveloped in darkness and confused images. Neither Consuelo nor Albert, neither the invisible chiefs nor their adepts, cast a very clear-sighted glance upon that age, into the bosom of which they burned to rush with the enthusiastic hope of regenerating it by storm. They believed themselves on the eve of an evangelical republic, as the disciples of Jesus had believed themselves on the eve of the kingdom of God upon earth, as the Taborites of Bohemia had believed themselves on the eve of a paradisiacal state, as more recently the French Convention believed itself on the eve of propagandism, victorious over the whole face of the globe. But without this insensate confidence, where would be the great acts of devotedness? And without great enthusiasm, where would be great results? Without the utopia of the divine seer Jesus, where would be the notion of human brotherhood? Without the infectious visions of Joan of Arc, would we still be Frenchmen? Without the noble chimeras of the 18th century, would we have acquired the first elements of equality? That mysterious revolution which each sect of the past had dreamed of for its own time, and which the mystical conspirators of the last century had vaguely predicted fifty years beforehand, as an era of political and religious renovation, neither Voltaire nor the calm philosophic brains of his time, nor Frederick II himself, the great realizer of logical and cold force, foresaw either its rough storms or its sudden abortion. The most ardent, as well as the most wise, were far from reading clearly in the future. Jean-Jacques Rousseau would have denied his work if the mountain had appeared to him in a dream surmounted by the guillotine. Albert de Rudelstadt would suddenly have again become the lethargic madman of the Schreckenstein. If those bloody glories followed by the despotism of Napoleon and the restoration of the old regime, followed by the reign of the vilest material interests, had been revealed to him, to him who thought he was laboring to overthrow, immediately and forever, the scaffold and the prison, the barrack and the convent, the board of the money-changer and the citadel. They dreamt then, those noble children, 
and they acted upon their dream with all the strength of their soul. They belonged neither more nor less to the age than did the skillful politicians and the wise philosophers, their contemporaries. They saw neither more nor less than did these the absolute truth of the future, that great unknown, which we each clothed with the attributes of our own power, and which deceives us all, at the same time that it confirms us, when it appears to our sons, clothed in the thousand colors of which each of us has prepared a shred for its imperial toga. Happily, each century sees it more majestic, because each century produces more laborers for its triumph. As to the men who would wish to rend it purple and cover it with eternal mourning, they can accomplish nothing against it. They do not comprehend it, slaves of the present reality. They do not know that the immortal has no age, and that whoever does not dream of it, as it may be tomorrow, can by no means see it such as it must be today. Albert, in that moment of supreme joy in which Consuelo's eyes at last fixed themselves on his with rapture, Albert, rejuvenated by all the benefits of health and beautified by all the intoxication of happiness, felt himself invested with that almighty faith which could remove mountains, if there were other mountains to bear in such moments than the weight of our own reason shaken by that intoxication. Consuelo was at last before him, like the Galatea, of the artist beloved by the gods, awakening at the same time to love and to life. Silent and engrossed, her features illumined with a celestial glory, she was completely, incontestably beautiful for the first time in her life, because she existed completely and really for the first time. A sublime serenity shone upon her brow, and her large eyes were moistened by that rapture of the soul of which the intoxication of the senses is but a weakened reflection. She was thus beautiful, only because she was ignorant of what was passing in her heart and upon her face. Albert alone existed for her, or rather, she no longer existed except in him, and he alone appeared to her worthy of immense respect and boundless admiration. The fact was that Albert also was transformed, and as if surrounded with the supernatural radiance as he gazed upon her. She again found, indeed, in the depth of his glance, all the solemn grandeur of the noble sorrows he had undergone. But those bitternesses of the past had left no trace of physical suffering upon his features. He had upon his brow the placidity of the resuscitated martyr who sees the earth reddened with his blood fly from beneath his feet, and the heaven of infinite recompenses open above his head. Never did an inspired artist create a more noble figure, of hero or of saint, in the finest days of ancient or of Christian art. All the invisibles, struck with admiration in their turn, stopped, after having formed a circle around them, and remained for some moments absorbed in the noble pleasure of contemplating that beautiful couple, so pure before God, so chastely happy before men. Then twenty manly and generous voices sang in chorus, to an air of antique grandeur and simplicity, O Hymen, O Hymenae! 
The music was by Porpora, to whom the words had been sent with the request for an epithalmic song for an illustrious marriage, and he had been nobly recompensed without knowing from whose hands came the benefit. As Mozart, on the eve of expiring, was one day to find his most sublime inspiration for a mysteriously ordered requiem. So old Porpora had recovered all the genius of his youth to write a hymeneal song, the poetical mystery of which had awakened his imagination. From the first notes, Consuela recognized the style of her dear old master, and turning with effort from the glance of her lover, she searched among the coryphes for her adopted father, but his spirit only was there. Among those who had shown themselves his worthy interpreters, Consuela recognized several friends. Frederick de Trenck, the Porporino, the younger Benda, the Count Goliquin, Schubert, the Chevalier d'Eon, whom she had known at Berlin and whose real sex she, as well as the rest of Europe, was ignorant of. The Count de Saint Germain, the Chancellor Cosi, the Barberini's husband, the librarian Nikolai, Gottlieb, whose fine voice rose superior to all the others. Lastly, Marcus, whom Wanda, by an energetic gesture, pointed out to her, and whom a sympathizing instinct had caused her to recognize beforehand in the guide who had presented her, and had performed for her the duties of Godfather. All the invisibles had opened and thrown back upon their shoulders their long black robes of gloomy aspect. A costume of purple and white, elegant and simple, relieved by a chain of gold which bore the insignia of the order, gave to their group the aspect of a fete. The mask was wound around the wrist, ready to be replaced upon the face at the slightest signal of the watcher, stationed as the sentinel upon the dome of the edifice. The orator, who filled the office of interpreter between the invisible chiefs and their adepts, also unmasked and came to congratulate the happy couple. It was the Duke de Blanc, that rich prince who had devoted his fortune, his intellect, and his enthusiastic zeal to the work of the invisibles. He was the host of their assemblages, and his residence had for a long time been the asylum of Wanda and of Albert hidden therein from all profane eyes. That residence was also the principal headquarters of the operations of the Tribunal of the Order, although there existed several others, and their rather numerous meetings were only annual, during some days in the summer, except in extraordinary cases, initiated into all the secrets of the chiefs. The Duke acted for them and with them, but he did not betray their incognito, and, taking upon himself alone all the dangers of the enterprise, he was their interpreter, and their visible medium of communication with the members of the association. When the young couple had exchanged sweet expressions of joy and affection with their brethren, each resumed his place, and the duke, again becoming the brother orator, spoke thus to the pair crowned with flowers and kneeling before the altar, Dear and well-beloved children, in the name of the true God, all power, all love, and all intelligence, and after him, in the name of the three virtues which are a reflection of the divinity in the human soul, activity, charity, and justice, which are translated in application by our formula. <laughs> 
liberty, fraternity, equality. Finally, in the name of the Tribunal of the Invisibles, which is vowed to the triple duty of zeal, of faith, and of study, that is, to the threefold investigation of political, moral, and divine truths, Albert Podebrad, Consuela Porporina, I pronounce the ratification and confirmation of the marriage already contracted by you before God, in the presence of your relatives, and also in the presence of a priest of the Christian religion, at Giant's Castle, the blank of the year 1750 blank. That marriage, valid in the eyes of men, was not valid in the sight of God. They were wanting thereto three things. First, the absolute devotedness of the wife to live with the husband, who appeared to be at his last hour. Second, the sanction of a moral and religious authority recognized and accepted by the husband. Third, the consent of a person here present, whose name I am not permitted to mention, but who is closely connected with one of the couple by the ties of blood. If these three conditions are now fulfilled, and neither of you has any reservation or objection, join your hands, and rise to take heaven as a witness to the freedom of your act and the holiness of your love. Wanda, who continued unknown to the brothers of the order, took the hands of her two children. The same impulse of tenderness and enthusiasm caused all three to rise, as if they had been but one. The formulas of marriage were pronounced, and the simple and touching rites of the new worship were accomplished with concentration and fervor. This engagement of a mutual love was not an isolated act in the midst of indifferent spectators, strangers to the moral bond which was contracted. They were all called upon to sanction this religious consecration of two beings united with them in a common faith. They extended their arms over the pair to bless them, then they all took each other by the hands and formed a living enclosure, a chain of fraternal love and religious association around them, while they pronounced the oath to assist them, to protect them, to defend their honor and their life, to support their existence in case of need, to recall them to goodness by every effort if they should falter in the rough career of virtue to preserve them as much as possible from persecutions and temptations from without, on all occasions, in all encounters, finally to love them as holily, as cordially, as seriously as if they were bound to them by name and by blood. The handsome Trank pronounced this formula for all the others in eloquent and simple terms. Then he added, addressing the husband, Albert, the profane and criminal usages of the old society, from which we separate in secret in order to bring it to us some day, demand that the husband should impose fidelity upon his wife in the name of a humiliating and despotic authority. If she fall, he must kill his rival. He has even the right to kill his wife. That is called washing away in blood the stain brought upon his honor. Thus, in that blind and corrupt old world, every man is the natural enemy of that happiness and of that honor so savagely guarded. The friend, the brother even, arrogates to himself the right to rob the friend and the brother of the love of his companion, or at least they take a cruel pleasure in exciting his jealousy, in rendering his watchfulness ridiculous, 
in sowing distrust and trouble between him and the object of his love. Here, as you know, we understand better what our honor, love, and the pride of family. We are brothers before God, and he of us who should cast a bold and disloyal glance upon his brother's wife would already, in our eyes, have committed the crime of incest in his heart. All the brothers, affected and carried away, drew their swords and swore to turn those blades against themselves, rather than break the oath they had pronounced by the mouth of Trenk. But the civil, excited by one of those enthusiastic transports which gave her so much ascendancy over their imaginations, and which often modified the opinion and the decisions of the chiefs themselves, broke the circle by rushing into the midst. Her language, always energetic and burning, enthralled their assemblages. Her tall stature, her drapery waving upon her emaciated form, her majestic though unsteady movements, the convulsive trembling of that always veiled head, and with this, moreover, a kind of grace which revealed the past existence of beauty, that charm so powerful in a woman that exists even after it has disappeared and still affects the mind when it can no longer move the senses. Finally, even her extinguished voice, which under the empire of exaltation suddenly acquired a shrill and strange grandeur, all contributed to make of her a mysterious being, almost terrifying at first sight, and soon infested with a persuasive power and an irresistible prestige. All kept silence to listen to the voice of the inspired one, Consuelo was affected by her attitude as much as they, and more than they, perhaps, because she knew the secret of her strange life. Shuddering with involuntary terror, she asked herself if this specter escaped from the tomb really belonged to this world, and if, after having breathed forth her oracle, she would not fade into air with that flame of the tripod which made her appear so transparent and so unearthly. Hide from my eyes those glittering weapons, cried the shuddering Wanda. Those are impious oaths which take as the object of their invocation instruments of hatred and of murder. I know that the usage of the old world has bound that steel to the side of every man considered free as a mark of independence and bravery. I know that in the ideas which, in spite of yourselves, you have retained from that old world the sword is the symbol of honor, and that you believe you assume a holy engagement when you have sworn by its blade, like the citizens of primitive Rome. But here, it is profaning an august oath. Swear, rather, by the flame of this tripod. The flame is the symbol of life, of light and divine love. But you then still require emblems and visible signs? Are you still idolaters, and do the figures which adorn this temple represent to you anything else than ideas? Ah, swear, rather by your own feelings, by your best instincts, by your own hearts, and if you do not dare to swear by the living God, by the true, eternal, and sacred religion, swear by holy humanity, by the glorious bursts of your courage, by the chastity of this young woman, and by the love of her husband." Swear by the genius and the beauty of Consuelo, that your desire and even your thought will never profane this holy arch of marriage, 
this invisible and mystic altar upon which the hand of angels engraves and enregisters the oath of love. Do you indeed know what love is? added the civil, after having reflected for a moment, and with a voice which became every instant more clear and more penetrating. Did you know, O venerable chiefs of our order and ministers of our worship, you would never have caused to be pronounced before you that formula of an eternal engagement which God alone can ratify, and which, when consecrated by men, is a kind of profanation of the most divine of all mysteries. What force can you give to an engagement which is in itself a miracle? For every soul is eternally free by virtue of a divine right. And yet, when two souls give and enchain themselves, each to the other, by love, their mutual possession becomes as sacred, as much of divine right as is individual liberty. You see that there is herein indeed a miracle, of which God forever reserves to himself the mystery, as much as he does that of life and death. You are about to ask of this man and of this woman if they wish to belong to each other exclusively in this life, and such is their fervor that they will answer you, not in this life alone, but in eternity. God therefore inspires them by the miracle of love, with much more faith, with much more strength, with much more virtue than you could or would dare to ask of them. Away then with sacrilegious oaths and brutal laws. Leave to them the ideal, and do not bind them to reality by the chains of law. Leave to God the care of continuing the miracle. Prepare souls so that the miracle may be accomplished in them. Form them to the ideal of love. Exhort, instruct them, praise and demonstrate the glory of fidelity, without which there is no strength, no sublime love. But do not intervene, as do the Catholic priests and the magistrates of the old world, in the execution of the oath. For, I tell you once again, men cannot hold themselves vouchers, nor constitute themselves guardians of the perpetuity of a miracle. What do you know of the secrets of the eternal? Have we already entered into that temple of the future, in which, as we are told, man will converse with God under the sacred shades, as friend with friend? Has the law of indissoluble marriage ever issued from the mouth of the Lord? Have his intentions in this respect ever been proclaimed upon the earth? And you, O children of men, have you promulgated that law with a unanimous agreement? Have the pontiffs of Rome, who call themselves infallible, never broken the conjugal union? Under pretense of nullity in certain engagements, those pontiffs have consecrated veritable divorces, the scandal of which history has proclaimed in her records. And Christian societies, the Reformed sects, the Greek Church, have, after the example of the Mosaic and other ancient religions, frankly admitted the law of divorce in our modern world. What becomes, then, of the sanctity and efficacy of an oath when it is asserted that men can at any day free us from it? Ah, do not touch love by the profanation of marriage. You will only extinguish it in pure hearts. 
Consecrate the conjugal union by exhortations, by prayers, by a publicity which may render it respectable, by affecting ceremonies. You should do this if you are our priests, that is, our friends, our guides, our counselors, our consolers, our lights. Prepare souls for the holiness of a sacrament, and as the father of a family seeks to establish his children in conditions of well-being, of dignity and of security, so do you, our spiritual fathers, assiduously endeavor to establish your sons and your daughters in conditions favorable to the development of true love, of virtue, of sublime fidelity. And when you have caused them to undergo religious trials, by means of which you can ascertain that there is in their mutual attachment neither cupidity, nor vanity, nor frivolous intoxication, nor blindness of the senses devoid of ideality. When you shall have become convinced that they understand the greatness of their feelings, the sacredness of their duties, and the freedom of their choice, then permit them to give themselves to each other and mutually to alienate their inalienable liberty. Let their family and their friends in the great family of the faithful intervene to ratify with you that union which the solemnity of the sacrament must render respectable. But pay strict attention to my words. Let this sacrament be a religious permission, a paternal and social authorization, an encouragement and an exhortation to the perpetuity of the engagement. Let it never be a command, an obligation, a law with threats and punishments, an imposed slavery, with scandal, prisons and chains in case of infraction. Otherwise you will never see the miracle accomplished upon the face of the earth in its entireness and duration. Eternally fruitful providence, God, the indefatigable dispenser of grace, will always bring before you fervent and artless young couples ready to bind themselves in good faith for time and for eternity. But your anti-religious law, your anti-human sacrament, will always destroy in them the effect of grace, the inequality of conjugal rights according to sex, an impiety consecrated by social laws, the difference of duties in the eye of opinion, the false distinctions of conjugal honor, and all the absurd notions created by prejudice, in consequence of bad institutions, will always come to extinguish the faith and chill the enthusiasm of the married couple. And the most sincere, those most disposed to fidelity, will be the soonest saddened, the soonest terrified at the duration of the engagement, and the soonest disenchanted with each other. The abjuration of the individual is in fact contrary to the will of nature and to the cry of conscience when men intervene, because they bring to it the yoke of ignorance and of brutality. It is conformable to the desire of noble hearts and necessary to the religious instinct of strong wills when it is God who gives us the means of striving against all the snares which men have spread around marriage to make of it the grave of love, of happiness and of virtue, to make of it a legalized prostitution, as said our fathers, the Lollards, whom you know well and whom you often invoke. Render therefore to God the things that are God's, and take from Caesar the things that are not Caesar's. And you, my son, said she, 
returning towards the center of the group. You who have just sworn never to attack the conjugal union. You have taken an oath of which you have not perhaps understood the importance. You have obeyed a generous impulse. You have responded with enthusiasm to the appeal of honor. That is worthy of you, disciples of a victorious faith. But now, know clearly that you have therein accomplished more than an act of private virtue. You have consecrated a principle without which conjugal chastity and fidelity will never be possible. Enter therefore into the spirit of such an oath, and recognize that there will never be true individual virtue so long as the members of society are not solidary with each other in respect to virtue. O love, O sublime flame, so powerful and so fragile, so sudden and so fugitive, flash of heaven, which seems to cross our life and be extinguished in us before its end from the fear of consuming and annihilating us. We feel truly that thou art the vivifying fire emanating from God himself, and that he who could fix thee in his bosom and preserve thee there until this last moment, always as pure and as complete, would be the happiest and the greatest among men. Thus the disciples of the ideal will always seek to prepare for thee in their souls sanctuaries in which thou mayst delight that thou need not hasten to abandon them and reascend to heaven. But alas, those of whom we have made a virtue, one of the bases of our human societies, in order that we may honor thee as we desire, thou hast nevertheless not wished to allow thyself to be enchained at the will of our institutions, and thou hast remained free as a bird in the air, capricious as the flame upon the altar. Thou seemest to laugh at our oaths, at our contracts, at our very wills. Thou fliest from us in spite of all we have imagined to fix thee in our customs. Thou dost not dwell in the harem, guarded by vigilant sentinels, any more than in the Christian family, placed between the threats of the priests, the sentence of the magistrate, and the yoke of opinion. Whence, then, thy inconstancy and ingratitude... O mysterious fascination, O love cruelly symbolized under the features of an infant and blind God! With what tenderness and what disdain art thou, by turns inspired toward these human souls, all of whom thou enkindlest with thy fires, and almost all of whom thou desertest and leavest to perish in the anguish of regret, of repentance, or of still more horrible disgust! Whence is it that thou art invoked with bended knee over the whole surface of our globe, that thou art exalted and deified, that divine poets sing of thee as the soul of the world, that barbarous nations sacrifice human victims to thee by casting widows upon the funeral pyres of their husbands, that young hearts invoke thee in their sweetest dreams, and the old curse life, when thou abandonest them to the horrors of solitude? Whence is that worship, sometimes sublime, sometimes fanatical, which has been decreed to thee from the golden infancy of humanity, even to our iron age, if thou art only a chimera, the dream of a moment's intoxication, an era of the imagination excited by the delirium of the senses? 
Oh, it is that thou art not a vulgar instinct, a mere necessity of animal nature. No, thou art not the blind child of paganism. Thou art a son of the true God and the very element of divinity. But thou hast as yet been revealed to us only through the cloud of our errors, and thou hast not wished to establish thy abode among us, because thou hast not been willing to be profaned. Thou wilt return, as in the fabulous times of Astria, as in the visions of the poets, to fix thyself in our terrestrial paradise, when by sublime virtues we shall have deserved the presence of a guest like thee. Oh, then the abode upon this earth will be sweet to men, and it will be good to have been born here, when we shall all be brothers and sisters, when union shall be freely consented to and freely maintained by strength derived from thee alone, when, instead of this frightful, this impossible strife which conjugal fidelity is obliged to sustain against the impious attempts of debauchery, of hypocritical seduction, of unbridled violence, of perfidious friendship and skillful depravity. Every husband shall find around him only chaste sisters, jealous and delicate guardians of the happiness of the sister whom they have given to him as a companion, while every wife will find in other men so many brothers of her husband, happy and proud in his happiness, born protectors of his repose and his dignity." Then the faithful wife will no longer be the solitary flower which hides itself to guard the fragile treasure of its purity, the often forsaken victim who consumes herself in retreat and in tears, powerless to revive in the heart of her well-beloved the flame which she has preserved pure in her own. Then the brother will no longer be obliged to avenge his sister and to kill one whom she loves and whom she regrets in order to restore to her a semblance of false honor. Then the mother will no longer tremble for her daughter. Then the daughter will no longer blush for her mother. Then, above all, the husband will no longer be suspicious nor a despot, and the wife will abjure on her side the bitterness of the victim or the rancor of the slave. Atrocious sufferings, abominable injustices, will no longer disgrace the calm and smiling sanctuary of the family. Love can then endure, and who knows, perhaps then, the priest and the magistrate, trusting with reason to the permanent miracle of love, may one day consecrate indissoluble unions in the name of God himself, with as much wisdom and justice as they now display unknowingly in piety and folly. But those days of recompense have not yet arrived, here in this mysterious temple in which, according to the words of the gospel, three or four of us are met together in the name of the Lord, we can only dream of and attempt virtue among ourselves. That external world, which would condemn us to exile, captivity, or death, did it penetrate our secrets, cannot be invoked as a sanction of our promises or a guarantee of our institutions. Let us therefore not imitate its ignorance and its tyranny. Let us consecrate the conjugal love of these two children who come to ask of us the blessing of paternal and fraternal love in the name of the living God, the dispenser of all love. Authorize them to promise to each other an eternal fidelity, but do not inscribe their oath upon the book of death. 
in order to remind them of it hereafter by terror and constraint. Let God be its guardian. It is for them to invoke him every day of their lives, that he may preserve in them the sacred fire which he has caused to descend upon them. It is this that I expected, O inspired Sybil, cried Albert, receiving in his arms his mother, exhausted by speaking so long, with the energy of conviction. I expected the avowal of this right which you grant me, to promise everything to her whom I love. You acknowledge that it is my dearest and most sacred right. I therefore promise to her, I swear to her, to love her entirely and faithfully all the days of my life. And I call God to witness. Tell me, O prophetess of love, that this is not a blasphemy. You are under the influence of the miracle, replied Wanda. God blesses your oath because it is he who inspires you with the faith to pronounce it. Always is the most passionate word that can come to the lips of lovers in the ecstasy of their divinest joys. It is an oracle which then escapes from their bosoms. Eternity is the ideal of love, as it is the ideal of faith. Never does the human mind more truly reach the height of its power and of its clearness than in the enthusiasm of a great love. The always of lovers is therefore an internal revelation, a divine manifestation which would cast its sovereign brightness and its beneficent warmth over all the moments of their union. Woe to whomsoever profanes this sacred formula. He falls from the state of grace into sin. He extinguishes faith, light, strength, and life in his heart. And I, said Consuelo, I accept your oath, O Albert, and I adjure you to accept mine. I feel myself, I also, under the influence of the miracle, and this always of our short life, seems to me as nothing in comparison with the eternity for which I wish to promise myself to you. Sublime rash one, said Wanda, with a smile of enthusiasm which seemed to radiate through her veil. Ask of God an eternity with him, whom you love, as a recompense for your fidelity towards him in this short life. Oh, yes, cried Albert, raising towards heaven his wife's hand clasped within his own. That is the aim, the hope, the recompense, to love each other greatly and ardently in this phase of existence in order again to meet and be reunited in others. Oh, I feel sure myself that this is not the first day of our union, that we have already loved, already possessed each other in anterior life. So much happiness is not an accident of chance. It is the hand of God that brings us together and reunites us as the two halves of a being inseparable in eternity. End of chapter 41, part 1.